0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm Maureen Metcalf, CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted that today we are joined by Greg Moran. And today we're going to be talking about generative AI and how do we lead in a context where hybrid workforce, so AI and human work is being done together. Greg, can you introduce
1: yourself a little bit, then let's jump into this. I've been in the technology business for the bulk of my career, dating back to really the late 70s, I started coding things. I built my first neural network on a PC-based system in the late 80s, so uh, it's not new technology to me. I'm really fascinated by what we're seeing around us right now in terms of generative AI, and it's going to be, as you say, the rapid evolution over the next couple of years.
0: I was with two different groups last week. In both conversations, we got into ChatGPT. So we did a demo during class, then they did a breakout session on communication, where they were supposed to role play some communication stuff. One of the groups worked with ChatGPT to develop their script for giving feedback. And it was interesting to watch modeling of what we'll call the hybrid workforce not hybrid working from home but humans and AI and how this group immediately resonated to here's a task it can do better to enable me to do my communication better I'm curious what you're seeing I
1: mentioned the concept of a tipping point and I think it's very typical in technology that we will have the idea for something but we won't be able to implement that idea sometimes for decades because the technology's just not capable of doing the things we need it to do. And we see that happen all the time, whether you're looking at quantum computing. And why are we even developing quantum computing? Aren't computers fast enough? Well, no, they're not. And we're going to keep making them faster. And when we make them faster, we discover that we can solve new types of problems with them. That's really what you're seeing with the advent of now kind of usable chat artificial intelligence. We've been trying to do this for a long time. It's just that the compute power has gotten high enough and the natural language processing models have gotten complete enough that you can now have it feel like you're interacting in a conversational way with what essentially is a search engine. You know, we've been heading this way for quite a while. You don't have to be that accurate on Google to get a reasonable result. That's the beginning of all of this. But it does require a lot of computing resources, and those resources ultimately start to make things look magical. It's just no different than when we were unpacking the DNA streams. You've seen the statistics, like the first attempt cost like $250 million and took 10 years. And now it's $50 of computing resources, and it's done in six minutes. To me, the phenomenon is really how is it going to impact how we do our work, not whether or not it's going to eliminate our work. Because we are meaning-seeking machines as humans, right? And we will seek some higher course of meaning given tools that allow us to do so. So let's now shift to the CEO group.
0: When we did a demo of ChatGPT, the conversation got really lively. In part, to me, the meaning I made from that was I didn't give much thought to automation of the checking out process in my local grocery store. It meant I didn't have to talk to someone and assuming the person ahead of me was reasonably efficient, the lines processed quicker. So I didn't think about what that meant to the person doing the checkout job. Watching the group see that things they have advanced degrees in can be done relatively effectively by a bot was interesting. And then the story we tell ourselves about what's that going to mean for my workforce, for me. This could be the largest single change to human experience over the course of history. Again, not chat GPT, but the ecosystem of thousands of these organizations all evolving, co-evolving.
1: Yes, and history is littered with technologies that were the biggest impact on human experience since the last one. So it may be true that, you know, generative AI, contextual AI will ultimately be the next biggest thing that impacts the human experience, but it'll take some time to play out. Inside of that will be a bunch of decisions on the behalf of people around how they're gonna spend their time and energy. And you will continue to see, as we have with other technological revolutions, a bifurcation of the people who create the technology, the people who use the technology and apply the technology, and the people who continue to do all the things that are essential to human existence on the planet. That evolves, but more slowly. You know, we live in houses, we need electricity, we need warmth, heat, and light, all of that stuff. We tend to look back at history and we look at it changes and we time compress everything in our mind. If I talk to Gen Z people today, they think of World War II as an event rather than it played out over 15 years. But to them, it's just an event. This World War II thing happened and then it was over and then some other things happened we're living through the actual evolution of it, and it will play out over time. The article I was reading was talking about how quickly
0: things would happen, and it was 40 years, 60 years, 100 years. And the question was the intersection of humans and AI and when do the machines have a capacity that exceeds humans, I think was the question. And again, the the timelines were 40 years, 60 years, and 100 years, depending on which group of researchers and what data and what assumptions. Yes. What was interesting in each of those, their projection had compressed
1: based on what's happened in the last two years. And I expect that those projections will compress. The question is, will we recognize the singularity when it occurs? Because, I mean, that's how it's referred to, is you know, when does a robot become more intelligent or a computer become more intelligent than a human? And then you run into some very interesting challenges like, how do you test for that? And how would we recognize that moment when it occurred? I was at a a venture capital conference a few years ago, and somebody who focused on robotics was asked by the interviewer, when will robots be better than humans? And the robotics guy looked at the interviewer and said, I'm kind of confused by the question. Robots are better than everything, at everything, than humans now. They're just not better at everything at once. And his point was, it's an integration problem, and it's an application problem. We've evolved as humans to be good at a certain number of things at the same time in a way that's very hard to replicate. But those are not the same things that dogs are good at, and they're not the same things that other animals are good at, and it's not what we design a robot to do. Nobody's out there trying to replicate a human. They're trying to actually make it better than a human in some way for some purpose. Whether you're building a robot soldier or you're building a robot to make things in a factory, you're designing it to be better than us at something. And necessarily, you don't even invest the money to make it good at the other things
0: because who cares? It's a silly example, but you make a robot in a factory look like a robot or a machine You don't make it prettier than the person operating the machine because
1: there's no... There's no investment, return on investment for that. Is it theoretically possible for us to pursue a completely humanoid robot? Yes, and I'm sure there will be people that do that just to prove the point. But there's not a huge advantage to that. You're actually going to design robots and you're going to use AI to do things that enhance what we can accomplish as humans or time compress it or whatever. And so to me, I don't find this technology threatening at all because I find myself thinking, this is going to be awesome because I get to now focus on the next level up of problem solving. Like we actually get to go up a layer of Maslow's hierarchy When more and more of those basic needs are met, that doesn't mean we're all going to be sitting around contemplating our navels. We'll just be contemplating the next level of opportunity for humanity. There are a couple things that we're playing with. One is I finally
0: said yes to writing our next book, and it is enabled by generative AI. So it's an essentials book. So one of the things it needed to do, or I needed to do, was boil down all the stuff we've written to abbreviated, easy to digest, practical set of tools. Well, if I could have done that before, I would have done it before.
1: So do you find yourself thinking how cool that is? Because now you can write twice as many books and generate way more original content?
0: Yeah. So the first pass on this is go look at my books, look at other research from whomever in our sphere for people who are doing academic research in the space, but then write it in a voice that is highly accessible, give us citations. I still have to go check the citations because it will falsely quote things. I still have to make sure that the synopsis it wrote is the synopsis that aligns with what I believe is true.
1: So you're saying that generative AI is as good at lying as humans are?
0: Probably better. It made up all kinds of stuff. I am certainly not advocating, go have ChatGPT write my book for me because I would be highly embarrassed. But can it give me a first draft? Absolutely. And so it has compressed what I'm able to do. And it gives me the freedom to look at a draft rather than looking at a blank sheet of paper. And if I can then step back and say, okay, no, really, I want it to look like this. It helps me frame my question. The thing you said, humans do well, we ask good questions. Then ChatGPT can go back and rewrite, which I've done like a hundred times already. But that's a lot quicker because it writes in two minutes. I write in two hours per pass. And so it's compressed things dramatically.
1: Based on my hit rate, if you evaluated my ability to ask good questions during my dating years in college, I probably wouldn't have rated very high. Well,
0: and if your criteria was like mine, it was cute, funny. It wasn't necessarily
1: good employment potential. I was really hoping that they could look at me and not recoil. That was really what what I I was was going going for. for. But in all seriousness, it does allow us to begin to work at the next level of thinking. And the point that you're making is a really good one. This format that we're interacting in right now is very generative because what you find out is when you're in a conversation, the ability to think and to expand on a topic goes up exponentially. It's not one plus one. When we're in a conversation, the quality of the dialogue on a topic goes up by a significant factor, maybe a factor of 10, versus just each of us alone sitting and recording something and then sending it to each other. Well, that's essentially what you've got now with generative AI. You can be in a dialogue with a vast array of information that can come at you in a coherent way. That's better than search results on a Google page. So it's just the next evolution of that, and it allows us to then think better, think more clearly, and think more generatively on the topic because we're really in a conversation now. And eventually, by the way, when I say eventually, not very far from now, it will be conversational. I will be able to have this podcast conversation with ChatGPT in a conversational way. And we all know how powerful that is. That's why this format works. And that's why people love listening to podcasts that involve a conversation because so much more meaning gets created. So will I be irrelevant
0: as a podcast host? Will GPT now be hosting podcasts?
1: No, you'll have way more flexibility and you'll have way more ability to generate interesting conversations because it won't always have to be with a person who has to get scheduled and meet you somewhere and do a thing.
0: So I can ask ChatGPT as the host. We're going to have a conversation with the mindset of Greg Moran. So give me all the stuff you know about Greg Moran and take on Greg's
1: voice. There is AI today that can mimic your sound and accent within five minutes of training. We're going to use that for our videos.
0: So we're going to have Avatar Maureen update our videos. Now, I'm also asking clients, what do you think about that? And all they've said is, we want to know that it's fake Maureen. So Maureen's avatar is now going to introduce this module to you, not passing it off as me.
1: We are already seeing that, right? It's like people want authenticity. And interestingly, authenticity can be the fake But if it's authenticity that's actually a fake, i.e. it's not real Maureen, and then they find out that wasn't real Maureen, then you feel taken advantage of. But if you know that it's an avatar of Maureen and the avatar looks like an avatar, there's a congruity to that versus if it's actually you talking. And that makes us more comfortable because I know what I'm dealing with.
0: That was where the, the group said, as long as you introduce it as Maureen's avatar...
1: I don't think we'll ever get away from people screaming for authenticity. And I think we're in a time period where there is so much that is not real that the value of authenticity has gone up and our craving for authenticity has gone up. And so I think there's still going to be a very meaningful role for us to play in authentic interaction with each other. It's just that we can do more of that with higher quality than we ever could before. We talked the uh, other day about how research has changed even in our lifetimes. I'm reasonably old, but you know, when I went to college, the way you researched the paper was you went to the library, and you had to know the Dewey Decimal System, and, you know, you did the hardcore physical research, sometimes in very big libraries. I went to a small college, and so I had to go to other university libraries to get great content. And so, you know, I'm getting in my car, I'm driving over there, I'm getting the lay of the land, I'm finding my way through. Nobody has to do that anymore. But has it been the end of education? Of course not. It's actually allowed education to focus more of its time and energy on valuing the meaning of what you write and less on whether or not you actually did the work to do the research and With generative AI, it's just going to move to the next level. It's less about what you write because anybody can write well now. It's going to be how did you apply and find meaning in what you wrote.
0: I was cleaning a cabinet the other day and I found some calculators and They're out of the house. I don't need those anymore.
1: Right. So we'll continue to evolve what we spend our time and energy on. And again, you'll see people bifurcate along the whole spectrum of how they respond to that opportunity. And some people will be, you know, like my father-in-law, you know, before he passed away, he actually was a programmer for the government for his whole life. But he was a mainframe programmer. And the concept of a personal computer and a graphical user interface eluded him. So he just opted out. So he just opted out. Uh Just said, I'm not going to participate in the computing world. Didn't want to understand the internet. Then you know what? He lived fine. He wasn't unhappy. He wasn't feeling like he was missing out, but he just made a choice. And I think we will have that happen. But I do believe that the predictions of the end of things rarely, rarely come true. I remember when automated spreadsheets first came out, and it was going to be the end of the accounting profession. You know what the single most scarce profession in the United States right now is? Accounting. They're desperate for accounting, people right now. Yeah, you know, so it's like if you've got a kid in college, tell them to take accounting. They're high demand, very high pay scale right now. They just that... don't use the 10-key calculator that we
0: used to carry around back. Exactly,
1: <laughs> And they're probably using pre-prepared models. We're way beyond the spreadsheets now with Power BI and and Tableau and the tools that they have for analytics, the accountants are doing really two different things. One, they're creating meaning out of the numbers so that you can make better decisions. And then number two, unfortunately, the rules of accounting are ever-evolving and non-negotiable if you're a public company. And so you have to stay compliant. And it's just like tax law. We're not running out of tax accounts anytime soon because the tax laws don't get simpler. They get more complicated. And what a tax accountant does now is not run the numbers. There's software that does that. They help you make good decisions and plan, right? So to me, it's just all about that evolving role of the human in the ecosystem that we choose to occupy, which, by the way, is quite uneven across the population of the earth.
0: And that's the thing that strikes me, having worked with people mid to later career, and there's a group of people like your father-in-law, but who are still working, right? Who've said, I just need to hang on for the next five to 10 years. And my response is typically, you don't get to hang on and not change for 10 years. That's too long of a horizon. If that's your goal, you should probably really talk to your financial planner and see how quickly you can exit or talk to your coach and see how quickly you can change. Because especially now, as we're looking at things like generative AI, most jobs will change too much for someone who doesn't want to change.
1: I agree. And I think at the risk of sounding judgy about it, that's an intellectual laziness. Most people have achieved some level of success in their career specifically because they were willing to learn and because they were willing to apply that knowledge to some act of value creation. To then say mid-career, I'm unwilling to do that anymore, is to me an intellectual laziness. You have to evolve because the world around you is evolving. And if you're unwilling to adapt, I couldn't agree with you more. There will be consequences to be paid and you will become obsolete. I have made that argument multiple times in my career in IT as generations of technology change. And you'll find somebody who's was programming in a specific type of environment for the first 10, 15 years of their career. And we come along and say, okay, we're shifting strategy and we're going to be moving to a whole different type of programming. And they're like, I don't want to... So you're talking to people that specifically got this high-paying job because they applied themselves and learned this programming skill that are now saying, I can't learn anything new I just want us to stay with the same thing. And you're looking at him like, the thing that made you valuable in the first place was your willingness and commitment to actually learn something. And kudos to you. You proved it to us and we hired you, not because you know a thing that's a piece of it, but because you proved you can know a thing and you can learn a thing. So I'm just asking you to tap into that same level of commitment again, because I have every confidence that you can learn again because you did it once. I worry about the person that's never gotten good at anything. You know, I call them parking lot puddles. They're a mile wide and an inch deep. They've never applied themselves, right, to get good at something. It's one of the things I interview for. I don't really even care what the thing is. Just demonstrate to me that you have showed that you have the discipline to make the trade-offs required to become exceptional at something because that's what it always takes. And if you've done it once, I have every confidence that you can do it again if you choose to, to your point. If you choose not to, for sure there are consequences.
0: The thing that strikes me right now is there will be a significant human cost to the evolution of AI. And to your point, it's often by choice. If I choose not to learn,
1: if I just don't want to, then Agreed. And, you know, in those cases, the example I was giving, this was not just a scenario of learn or die. It was, we as a company want to invest in you, and we're willing to pay for your education and give you the time to learn, right? If somebody still opts out, it becomes harder and harder inside of a company where you're accountable for achieving outcomes and creating value to accommodate that. But for people who are willing and that we create the opportunity for, I think it's going to be a fun world.
0: I'm having a blast playing around with it. Just to get to do this is exciting.
1: The next question I would ask you is, what are the things that you haven't conceived of that you'll be able to do because you now have the bandwidth to do other things that you did want to do with way less bandwidth? and that's when it gets really fun. You get to start working on another level. Mm-hmm. But you can't conceive of that level until you've created some space at the level that you're in. Mm-hmm. It's inherent in the human development process. You know, you can't walk until you've crawled, right? And you can't conceive of walking until you're good at crawling, meaning you've built up the muscle that you need to allow this walking thing to come into your realm of possibility. So for me, the fun's going to be for you and for everyone around us. Once you actually start to create space in your life, because these tools now create bandwidth for you and you can get a bunch of things done that were in your backlog and they're now not in your backlog and you have time to think about what would I do next or what else can I do? That's when it gets fun. That's actually what we're observing chat GPT is simply the outcome of people asking that question because there wasn't much else to be done with the stuff they had. So what's now possible?
0: So let me ask you, what would you do with an extra two hours a day?
1: (laughs) I told the story the other night and at the risk of being mildly inappropriate in this uh, interview, I'll retell it. A few years ago, I was in a corporate meeting and we had Brought in a speaker to talk to us, and he was at the time, I believe, the president of Singularity University in San Francisco, maybe Palo Alto. He was talking about this concept of the singularity and the fact that it's going to create a lot more leisure time. And I don't necessarily accept the premise that we will treat all the time that is created as leisure. I think because as critters, we're competitive if we're given more time, we will want to figure out how to win with that more time. And that won't be everybody, but it'll be a lot of people. So setting aside the premise that we'll have a lot more leisure time, somebody in the audience raised their hand and asked, well, what do you think we're going to do with that leisure time? And the answer was, well, we expect there to be a lot more exploration of the arts and people pursuing more, you know, mental pursuits and artistic pursuits, because we'll have the luxury to do that. While we will have people that will have the opportunity to pursue more artistic pursuits, I think many other people will use that time to compete. Many, you know, will use that time to be healthier and focus on things that might push the boundaries for other people. And there's a entrepreneur out in uh, San Francisco right now who you know, he's he's wealthy but he's not crazy wealthy not Elon Musk wealthy but he's hired a group of doctors to see just how far he can push the limits of reversing the effects of aging
0: i've read about him
1: and it's a very interesting pursuit and on the one hand i think you know i saw some comments where well it's just vanity and it's just him trying to live forever or whatever But when you really read the story and you understand what this person is subjecting themselves to, it's not fun. And they're spending a fair amount of money doing it. But I don't think it's as shallow as just, well, I want to see if I can live longer by reversing aging. I think there's a genuine intellectual curiosity that says, what's the limit of our technology today to reverse the effects of aging? And what would that mean in terms of longevity? And so to me, that's an interesting example of what could be done in this context is you will find new problems that you can focus on and spend time on that we don't have today. you get to work out as much as you'd like? I don't. I would love to do more yoga. I would love to do more
0: biking, hiking. Yeah, there are all kinds of outdoor pursuits that would also allow me to clear my head, think better.
1: Right. So if you're physically more healthy, if you're mentally more healthy, do you think it would lead to better content around leadership, better thinking around leadership and, and, and the things that you choose to apply yourself to? I'm betting 100% chance yes. 100% chance yes. I
0: will spend the time on self improvement, self improvement and the legacy. What's the impact? How do I maximize my impact as a human being in the world during the time I'm cognitively able and with two parents with Alzheimer's and dementia? there will be an end point to me unless this gentleman is able to reverse the process. At some point, I don't get to keep doing what I love to do.
1: It's a generational reality that every generation takes for granted the things they were handed by the generation before them. I heard a a funny story by Ronald Reagan the other day, and he said, you know, I was um, governor of California, a group of young hippies wanted to come talk to me and confront me as the governor. And so I'm, I'm sitting in my office, and they get brought into my office, and they're dressed in the uniform of the day, you know, torn jeans, barefoot, whatever. And, and one young man was just adamant that he wanted to make a point to me that my generation would never understand his generation. And, you know, it's not something that unused to hearing. And so I accepted that and tried to move beyond it. But the young man wanted to really make the point, and he went on to say, you haven't lived in a world where we have advanced computers and the ability to fly between continents in a few hours, and you didn't grow up with that, so you'll never be able to understand my generation. And he said, you know, normally when I'm in a conversation like that, I think of a good comeback after I get home that night, but this guy went on so long, I actually came up with a pretty good answer while he was talking. And so I let him finish. And then I interjected. And I said, you know, you're right. We didn't have those things when I was growing up. But that's because we invented them. And I think that's true now, right? So the generation of my kids, their kids are going to grow up with this as an assumption. It's exciting and new for them. But their kids are going to grow up just it's a normal part of their lives. And so they'll be working at that next level, and they're going to accuse my kids of not understanding them, and the cycle will continue. But each generation is getting the opportunity to work on problems at a different level. And in every generation, you will find the pioneers that push those limits and show us what's possible. And we can think of plenty of examples of that from our generation again, at the risk of polarizing, but I don't intend to, Elon Musk is one of those people that whether you like him, don't like him, like what he says, don't like what he says, that's not the point. The point is he's relentless at solving problems that people think can't be solved. I don't suppose he'll succeed at all of them, but he succeeds at a lot of them. And he succeeds at them because he has this absolute undying belief in the power of humanity to solve problems that they hitherto thought were unsolvable. And he's done it a couple of times in his career in very meaningful ways. And he's young enough, he'll keep doing it. For some period of time, for sure. But there will be an end to Elon, and then there will be another Elon, mm-hmm. right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There'll be lots of them. And I think each generation is characterized by people who are better at seeing how powerful the opportunity they've been handed might be. Mm-hmm. Those are the innovators. Those are the people that take us to the next level.
0: The thing that's striking me right now is the time between tipping points is shrinking. Kind of like the capacity of my computer to double in power, it's now done the hockey stick. It seems like over the course of the rest of my career, which I assume will be at least another decade, we'll see a lot more change than I've seen in the last decade
1: very hard to argue the point. There's no curve that you can follow around humanity that doesn't kind of have an uptick to it. And that uptick is fairly dramatic over the last 200 years. So it shouldn't surprise us that that acceleration will continue. I don't think that makes us obsolete ever. I think it makes the skills, the adaptation skills that we have to have begin to look different.
0: Okay, so let's talk about how they're different because I agree I become obsolete when I stop adapting. So that could be today, it could have been last month, or it could be 20 years from now or 40 years from now. But what does adapting look like for the next five years and how is that different than the last five years?
1: I don't know that it looks that different. I think it's that we have to accept that anything we take for granted, any assumption we make about technology will not be true for very long. It's a mindset shift as much as it is an actual adaptation that we have to make. Although there is some real adaptation that we have to make, right? I mean, you know, we can look at things that adapt slowly over time that we just adjust to and don't really even think about. Five years from now, we will take for granted that if we have a new car, it can drive itself. We may not choose to let it drive itself, but we will take for granted that it can. That's an inevitability in my mind, right? And what is the adaptation that emerges out of that? Your driving time can be productive time without taking the risk of dying. Yeah. Yeah. We have lots of people that are turning driving into productive time right now, but they're doing so at an extraordinary risk, right? And that will go away. So to me, that's just recognizing that anything you take for granted from a technological standpoint, you should not take for granted for long. And maybe your mindset what should be beginning to move towards, I should take nothing for granted. I should not accept anything at face value or that it's the end of the game because it will not be the end of the game.
0: We've talked a lot about the mindsets, the seven mindsets for what we believe are effective leadership. And as I continue to revisit, are those still valid? It seems like when change happens slower, they weren't as required as they are now and not as required as they will be over the next five to 10 years. If I'm not obsessively curious rather than just intellectually curious, I'm probably going to get left behind. I
1: tend to agree. I'm thinking of an analogy here around language. We've got more people on the earth than there have ever been. And we are more connected than we have ever been in real time. So language evolves very rapidly and at mass scale. So a new piece of vernacular can make it into common usage in a small town in Australia, and it can be in Canada in a day and start being used because somebody thinks it's cool because it was on Instagram or it was on one of the other social media platforms. TikTok, you had, what, 2 billion people watching that every day? Like, crazy numbers. So if somebody says something cool on TikTok and it goes viral, that's what it means. It means it spreads very, very fast and becomes part of common usage and language. And that can happen in 24 or 48 hours. To me, that's an example of you don't take anything for granted. And if you use a word and somebody gives you a funny look, ask why are you giving me a funny look when I say that word? Because I think it doesn't mean what you think it means. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, it turns out like yesterday, somebody said that was a thing. And then, then, well, I didn't know that. But if you don't ask, you've now become irrelevant or you've become even worse, potentially offensive when you had no intention. Mm-hmm. I also do think, though, that that means we will have to give each other more grace. And I think we experience that all the time. That's going to be harder to develop.
0: I'm just thinking of the amount of overwhelm. I'm not on TikTok, so I will miss the viral changes announced by TikTok. But how do I keep up with all this stuff and continue to work out and meditate and do the things for my health and
1: have downtime? I don't know that you have to keep up with all the stuff. You have to keep up with the stuff that's relevant to the work you want to do. And you'll have more flexibility about what that is. That's great. But I do think you have to be discriminating you've got to make the choice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be relevant to everyone. I can't be. Yeah. It's an impossible goal. And it's not a meaningful objective, right? Like at the end of the day, you have to choose your audience, choose your life's mission, choose where you want to be generative, where you want to be creating value and focus your energy on that space. And inside of that space, I do think, as you're pointing out, we have to be eternally curious.
0: What are you most curious about right now as you watch this coming online and think about how to apply it to your life and your work?
1: The role that AI can play in helping us make better decisions faster. And some of this has come out of, like, the work we're doing at my company. mm mm-hmm. But I'll apply it more broadly. When I look back on my career and the work that I've done in strategy and the role that I've played in running large organizations, sometimes in tumultuous times, I've concluded that the only true sustainable advantage, competitive advantage, is better, faster decisions. A higher quality decision made on a more timely basis is the only source of competitive advantage. What does that mean? That means that. If you can get more high quality information in a shorter period of time than your competitor and then you could make a decision based on that, which is a lower risk decision definitionally because you have more information available, you have a competitive advantage. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It mm-hmm. could be an HR decision. could be a financial decision. It could be a product decision. It could be on any dimension. But if you're inside of the decision loop of your competitor and you're making good decisions, then you're going to win consistently. This has been known for a long time. There's multiple bodies of thought on this, but one of them is by an Air Force colonel who developed something called the OODA loop, Mm -hmm. Colonel Boyd uh, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And his concept, and he proved it pretty thoroughly, was that if you can get inside of your enemy's OODA loop, i.e. you can be making better decisions faster than your enemy, you'll win every dogfight. Now, that was a small context, but I think that applies very largely to the human condition. And so to me, you know, what am I focused on? It's about how do we leverage AI to give as many people in as many contexts the capability to make better decisions faster? Because that'll just raise the water level for all of us.
0: And so do you have a sense of what that looks
1: like? In some spaces, yes. You know, at my company, we happen to focus deeply on connecting an entire company through the data that they use to interact with each other. You know, essentially it's their chat data for us, there's a really clear example. I mean, if you could turn to a CEO who today is relying on an annual survey for insight from his employees or her employees, and now you can effectively tap into the insight of your employees who know by far the most about your customers, the most about your products, and the most about your processes. And you can do that essentially in real time, and you can do it without invading their privacy, would that be valuable? And the answer is immeasurably valuable. We figured out that focusing on customer experience doesn't work in a vacuum. Why? Because all you do is yell at your employees to work harder to create an experience for employees. You're not making a good decision. Well, if you really want to impact the customer experience, you have to impact the employee experience. Well, what does that look like? Well, I don't know. We should probably ask them. Then you ask them, and 60 days later, you get a survey result that's been filtered, and it's, and it's not equally distributed. It tends to repress underrepresented groups because they don't want to participate in surveys because they don't want their head above the parapet, right? So, you've got all these problems with that kind of mechanism. And if you could wave a magic wand and say, using AI, we can tap into the collective intelligence of this organization in an authentic way without invading their privacy that gives everybody an equal voice. And those are the people that know the most about your customers' products and processes. Would that be valuable? That's an example. I don't want to say that's the example. Your question was broader, but that to me is an example of where this type of AI creates a completely different playing field that will ultimately enhance the experience of everybody who's working in a job at a company. That's pretty exciting. And by the way, enhance the experience of every customer of that company. That's awesome. And so then tie that
0: back to if I'm running the company and I can get the insights to make better decisions, it puts me ahead of my competition.
1: Absolutely. And it makes me a better leader, you know, because now I've got signal that I can rely on versus Having to go with your gut or say, Well, here's what's worked for me before. You know, you don't have to be theoretical. You don't have to be hopefully right by guessing. You can actually have the data drive the decision. You can be inductive. And I'm not saying we walk away from deductive, but when you combine a deductive commitment to good leadership with inductive access to data that helps you evolve those theories in real time based on the real circumstances that are being encountered by your employees and your customers. How exciting is that? That
0: is absolutely connecting your focus on helping people make better decisions, improving the quality of business outcomes, but also engagement, people's life conditions. I like going to work because my company creates a positive, constructive work environment and does so for my customers as well.
1: And think about challenges like implementing ESG and the blunt instruments that we're using to try and do that today versus a model where we can actually understand what the very real concerns of an underrepresented group might be in as an employee base at our company. Huge, huge difference in being able to address those concerns, and they're often poorly understood. I used the example earlier of underrepresented groups have a tendency not to reply in surveys, and certainly not to use verbatims, because there's this underlying fear that they're going to be found out and recognized, and that will hurt them. The first time I took one of those surveys, which was a long time ago, there were only two
0: women in the group, me and this person. The other woman said something about women are whatever, mistreated or whatever. It was hard not to know who wrote that comment. I had been there a month. So there was one woman who was a bit angry. And we all knew she was a bit angry. It, it's hard to be anonymous when you just sign your name to the
1: thing. And we have the ability with contextual AI to take that risk out of the equation. Because mm-hmm. we're not going to see the individual, but we're going to see the data point. And we're going to understand how common that data point is. And we'll understand its strength. And we'll understand its sentiment and its toxicity. And so we really begin to get the shape of an issue And now problems can be anticipated or problems we didn't know existed can be solved. That's next level thinking. That's the sort of thing that I'm talking about. And we've heard that from our customers already who have said, we didn't even know this problem existed and we wouldn't have known without your software and we were able to deploy a fix to it when before we wouldn't have even known it happened.
0: So this is the crawl, walk, run scenario. So as we're wrapping up, there are a couple of things I want to play back and forth with you on key points from our conversation. One, there are huge opportunities not to mitigate. Yes, there are risks, but huge opportunities for us to elevate the work we're doing.
1: Yeah, I don't think we should be afraid. I do think we should be thoughtful and pay attention. And that's different right? We shouldn't think of generative AI as a threat. We should think of it as an opportunity, and we should pay close attention. And I love the fact that we've got people out there beating these models up and finding where the cracks are so that they can get better rapidly. You kind of challenged me, what would I do
0: if I had more time? And I'm thinking about, well, one, I've got the long backlog like everybody else. I fix videos, blah, blah, blah. I'm inspired to think about now what's possible beyond the backlog. And how can I invest that extra time to accomplish my life purpose? Part of that is the biggest impact on leadership I can make during my working years. That's really exciting.
1: I agree, and I joked earlier that there's this competitive focus that will probably limit the degree to which people focus on artistic pursuits, but I don't think it's going to be entirely. I often have found myself walking through a beautiful old building like a cathedral or a handcrafted house and thinking, we just don't do this anymore. What if some of us started doing that again? And I think there is a yearning for that. And you chose up in some of the most mundane ways. You know, you look at Gen X versus Gen Y versus Gen Z and how we make and consume coffee. You know, if it's not taking 12 minutes and a pour over and a hand grind and all of that, it's disgusting and cannot be touched. To me, that's this. There's an indication there that there's a yearning for craftsmanship. There's a yearning for experience that this is going to enable, and it'll take us a while, but I think we'll gravitate back to the ability to just participate in the universe in ways. And not everybody will opt in, but we might have the luxury for more of us to do that versus, well, if I don't work 60 hours this week, I'm not going to keep up.
0: Truly, 60 hours a week for many people isn't about winning. It's just keeping up.
1: Absolutely. And some of that, I think, is is rooted in some unrealistic expectations we have of life. And I don't know that we're going to address that with generative AI, but I do think it'll give us time to contemplate the meaning of our unrealistic expectations. And maybe that'll take us back to a place that's like, hmm, I don't know that my starter house needs to be 5,000 square feet. To your point, if I'm not working 60 hours a week and my significant other isn't working 60 hours a week, I can't pay the mortgage on the 5,000-square-foot house, and I have decided that I am not succeeding unless I have the 5,000-square-foot house and two BMWs in the driveway. At some point, we've got to step back from that and say, does any of that make sense? As we wrap up, do you have any closing
0: thoughts for leaders who are a little slower to adapt
1: or adopt? Measured enthusiasm is the right approach. First of all, I think if you're of an age where this feels threatening, you know, step back and allow it not to be threatening. Seek to understand before you assume that it's a threat to you. But I would also say temper your enthusiasm. We've got a ways to go here. J.P. Morgan Chase announced yesterday that they've banned ChatGPT off of their entire network. Nobody can use it to produce any deliverables at J.P. Morgan Chase. They did that not because they don't think the technology has promise, but because the risks of the technology in its current state are significant enough to things like privacy and intellectual property and those sorts of things that they've said, we need to let it evolve a little further. It came across as a draconian response, but I think it's actually a measured and thoughtful one. That is not a company that has a history of not innovating so they will definitely take advantage of that technology. But I think they're demonstrating a thoughtful approach that says it's not ready for the work we're doing right now.
0: Even when I do these chapters, I'm not asking it to go look at everything. I'm looking at my prior writing,
1: academic works by
0: people that were also co-authoring chapters.
1: And its current instantiation is definitionally out of date already. Mm -hmm. You may be feeding it your stuff, but... Literally, when you sign in, it says, this has only got data in it up to 2020. Okay. Be measured in your use of it and your reliance on it, but be cautiously optimistic and engage and learn. This is going to be a
0: very evolving conversation. So for our listeners, first, thank you for joining us. And we are also interested in hearing your experiences so that we can learn from you and create better content. So thank you for listening. Please like us, share us, follow us, and continue the conversation in your own circles so people can continue to adapt and adopt and get the benefit that is possible as we all learn and grow.
1: Thank you, Maureen. It's always a pleasure to join you, and I look forward to doing so again soon.